0: Hi and welcome to the Go Performance We Do Science podcast. This is episode sixty, and I could not think of anyone better to uh, to bring to you today on this special episode sixty than and and I could be the first person to say this, Professor Craig Sale. Hi, Craig. How you doing? Hello. Yeah, good. My, uh, good myself. Yourself. Yeah. No, I'm I'm brilliant. It's just odd because the last time. Um, I spoke to you. You were just uh, a mere reader. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, no so you've gone onwards and upwards and in the patient. world. Yeah. And so this may be world. this may be the last time that uh, you, you'll you'll uh, you'll allow um, a peasant like myself to speak to you. Um, actually, I've got loads loads of professors have been on this uh, podcast, which is great. Um, so listen, um, we've we've had you on a, a few times now, and we've gotten into a number of things. And I know that we've mentioned in a previous. Um, podcast that um, one of your great areas of interest is in bone. And that is exactly what I wanted to um, get into uh, in today's uh, podcast. Before we we sort of go down that path, I should also just like to say thank you to um, HealthSpan Elite who are uh, sponsoring this podcast. And I will tell you more about that at the end of the uh, at the end of the podcast. So Craig, just in case, no one um, yet has caught up with the podcast that you've done for us so far. If you could just give us a quick overview as to who you are and uh, what your current areas of interest are.
1: Yes, yeah, so I'm basically uh, now a professor of human physiology at Nottingham Trent University um, as of this week. So it's, it's relatively fresh. P- prior to that, I was a reader in applied physiology at the same institution. Um In terms of the research group, I'm part of the musculoskeletal physiology research group and that sits within the Sport Health and Performance Enhancement Research Centre, which I head up um, for my SINs, which must have been uh, numerous in some previous life. Um, So that's pretty much it. In terms of interests, well, I started out with a number of interests in relation to uh, muscle metabolism, although my PhD was much more in relation to uh, blood hemostasis, so how the blood clots and dissolutes in response to exercise and various uh, nutrients, mainly alcohol actually, um, which is not a nutrient, but anyway. I um, would
0: argue, I would argue, yeah, and I many would argue, listeners yeah, exactly. would, it's essential to life. Um, <laughs> yeah.
1: And so, uh, subsequent to that, it's kind of moved on to, to sort of muscle metabolism, and then more so in terms of bone metabolism, and the response of bone to exercise and feeding.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, the reason why I wanted to get into this topic and and I have sort of diversified some of the topics in this podcast um, to things that are not necessarily um, areas that one would immediately think is performance-based which is sort of where this podcast goes, Um, nutrition being a, a big interest of mine of course but also generally exercise physiology. Um, And we've talked about so many things. we talked about everything from molecular uh, exercise biology. We've talked about applied um, concepts, sports psychology, um, all kinds of nutritional components from protein to carbohydrate, all sorts of things. But of course, we're talking about human beings um, and there are various complexities to that, which we've sort of... Delved into and in, in, in sort of twisted into into different sort of ideas and thoughts in this podcast, but at at, at sort of a fundamental level um, to human beings, something that that is core to them of course, is their own structure and function and um, we've explored a bit of, a bit about that you know the, the the role of health and all these sorts of things, but you know in the same way that sort of and hopefully I get this analogy right, but like a chassis is sort of the uh, uh, the backbone, uh, uh, no pun intended, to a vehicle upon which everything's sort of built on and you've got all of your components that affect performance, like the engine and how that's tuned and so on. But the strength of that vehicle and, and the power, et cetera, is all intimately related to the integrity of that chassis, which is a, a key component to that vehicle. And in the same way, I, I would look upon bone, um, skeleton, et cetera, being... Um, of a similar sort of idea to the human body, and it's not something that we necessarily talk about that much. Um, we delved into it with um, your better half recently, um, uh, Kirsty Excel, in, in um, the uh, relative energy deficiency podcast, uh, particularly with with females, but but with men and women generally, we don't really talk about bone. Um, and how nutrition and exercise can influence bone um, uh, in terms of what our training and uh, nutrition interventions are, and vice versa, how uh, poor bone integrity or poor bone function may affect health and performance. And that's what I wanted to get into today. Um, So perhaps we could start this podcast with you just giving this a bit of a, sort of bit, bit of a, a clarification as to, to what we're talking about when we say bone.
1: Yes, I mean, I think traditionally, as you rightly said, the, the, the view of, of, of bone was very much that it provided just some structural integrity to, to the human body, basically. It provided a, a framework for being LA, allowing us to move around, um, protecting vital organs, that kind of thing sort of moved on a little bit in terms of the understanding of it providing a reservoir for calcium in in the body, but we probably underplayed its role quite significantly and, and probably why now research on bone and bone metabolism is only just starting to sort of catch up with that on muscle and muscle metabolism is because we historically didn't think it did very much um, but now we know it's, it's probably far more metabolically active than we ever thought it was before. And it's also probably far more related to um, muscle metabolism. So there's, a, there's a, probably a far greater link between muscle and bone than we ever, ever thought before. And so that's obviously piqued the interest of, of sport and exercise scientists in terms of trying to pick out whether... Um, not only from a a long-term health point of view but also a short-term performance point of view there are any issues around the bone that we can resolve so one of the things I would say is that um, if you if you think about it if you if you develop let's say a stress fracture injury for example which is a an injury of the bone um, that can be a pretty significant injury and there is some evidence out there that suggests that if you if you have this injury of the bone, you can be out for kind of hundred fifty hundred and sixty plus days mm. um, so if you take one hundred and fifty hundred and sixty plus days out of a training schedule let's say next year, which is Olympic year. We take that amount of time out of a, an athlete's training schedule. I would argue that that's got a far bigger effect on their performance than any kind of other nutritional intervention or anything else that you could possibly employ to try to improve performance. So we can, if we think of it from the point of view of trying to prevent, um, you know, long-term absence from training, then. I would argue it's got a pretty significant role to play in the performance of the athlete as well as obviously long-term bone health avoiding things like uh, osteoporosis and osteopenia.
0: Yeah, the I mean, core cool. the as you say that I'm thinking about the ramifications of this. Not I mean, you know, if we were to be a bit more generalized about this and talk about you know what we do now and the impact that that has on our bones 30, 40, 50 years from now, or depending on the age of the listener, but you know, in your, in your 20s and 30s, for example, there are things that you could be doing now that, that may manifest things that you, you may not realize until you're 60 or something. I mean, that's frightening. But mm. if we, you know, because that, that could be a whole other podcast potentially, but if we, if we sort of bring this to the, into a more critical thing, like you say, for example, next year is sort of Olympic year. Uh, unlike, um, tearing, you know, something pretty horrible, like tearing, uh, a muscle, um, uh, that, that's something that you can deal with relatively quickly. Um, but, but with bones, we're talking a very long time and, 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 and associated with that is a whole magnitude of issues inactivity, the detraining that goes with the inactivity, the, um, potential loss of muscle, the atrophy that can go with that. You are in a very serious situation. So, having a f- an understanding, which we'll delve into today, of of bone and how we can optimize um, the integrity of bone, and 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 with a, a, an appreciation of, of the importance of bone health and and bone and performance, um, we effectively are also helping ourselves to minimize or, or avoid some of those potential problems. So. Um, we use, you know, we might use words like normal when we talk about bone and, and abnormal bone. I mean, what, what are the various states, I guess, that, that we could, you know, what are, the, what, are, what, are the, what are the different situations that we might car- categorise bone by? Well, I think if we,
1: if we bring it down to, I guess, the, the two main issues that the athletes um, might experience... Well, one is, as you rightly mentioned, this long-term effect on bone. So that is, you know, um, a, a long-term effect on their bone mass, the bone mineral density. And, and that might manifest itself as osteopenia, which is a slightly less severe form of osteoporosis, if we think of it like that. Um, and, and there are certain athlete groups that are particularly susceptible to low bone mass. Um, one that's particularly topical at the moment, for example, might be road cyclists. Mm. They're quite prone to, to low bone mass. Um, and the other one is, which is, is far more immediately of concern to the athlete. Because if you, if you sort of, as you rightly said before, if you tell an athlete in their 20s that they might have a problem in sort of, you know, 50 years time with their bone mass, it's not something that's an immediate concern to them. So the other one that is a concern is the um, short-term injury-related issues that can occur with the bone. So, for example, these are things like medial tibial stress syndrome, um, which is kind of akin to shin splints that most people will have sort of heard of, and um, sort of more severe stress fracture injury, of which there are sort of several grades of stress fracture. And sort of certainly severe stress fractures are are a pretty significant injury, like I mentioned before. So so Craig Ranson um, from uh, Cardiff has got some nice data in cricket fast bowlers, which I alluded to before, suggesting that, you know, the stress fracture injury can keep a, a fast bowler out of action for 160, 170 days, something like that on average, whereas all of the other injuries had an average of somewhere around 90 days, I think. I might be quoting those Um, statistics slightly incorrectly there but the the key point is that the stress fracture was was in terms of time lost from training was a was a a more significant injury than most other injuries so they're the kind of two things that that athletes face one is this kind of long-term issue over low bone mass and the other is this short-term issue over um, bone injury
0: so if we yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of different angles I, c- I can feel us getting into um, because also there's this idea of young bone and old bone, of course. Um, but sure. maybe, maybe before we, uh, I think that that would be a good sort of segue, just back into, quickly, just covering what what bone is, how it how it's sort of formed and made, um, and and maybe some of the things that we didn't really know in the past, because a lot of people think, oh, you know, you just eat your calcium and that's basically all you need, but actually it's far more complex than that. If you could just give us a quick, uh, quick overview.
1: Yes, yeah, so I mean a couple of the interesting things, one of the interesting things that sort of ties into what we talked about before is that, that the majority of your bone mass, probably about 90% of your bone mass, is already accrued by the time you're 20 years of age. So, you know, at that point, you, you, you accrue, you know, from birth, you accrue bone mass very, very quickly up until, like I said, you're sort of early to mid-20s. And then as you go into middle age, that, that rate of accrual plateaus and kind of holds fast, probably until sort of, what I would say, early older age, if you like, when it starts to decline. It starts to decline a little bit earlier and a little bit more rapidly um, in uh, females around menopause, once you take the the protective effect of oestrogen away, um, and then it sort of steadily declines over um, the, the, the subsequent years. Um, so, basically, the process by which bone is gained or lost is is called bone modelling. Uh, initially, or bone remodeling. So bone modeling is the kind of changes in bone that go on during growth, whereas bone remodeling is the changing of existing bone tissue. So um, that's basically determined by two closely coupled processes. One is bone resorption and one is bone formation. So bone resorption is how the bone um, breaks down so it's loss of the bone, if you like. And obviously then bone formation is how you replace that bone tissue. So usually these two processes are in a, in a delicate dynamic balance and they kind of cancel each other out. But where you've got issues of an increased bone formation over resorption, you're going to gain bone. And where you've got the opposite scenario, you're going to lose bone. So obviously during that sort of adolescence, if you like childhood and adolescence, the bone formation processes are far more uh, active than the bone resorption processes. So you're accruing that bone quite rapidly. And obviously during older age, it tends to be the other way around, or during menopause in females, it's the other way around. So bone resorption outstrips bone formation and you start to lose bone tissue.
0: Yeah. So there's going to be a couple of little angles here that I I think are going to be crossing people's minds. and, And we'll get into the... Uh, so the more performance stuff in a second but
1: you know I I, I recall and
0: it it seems like it wasn't so long ago but I'm sure it was now because we're all getting older Um, is is these sort of ideas that certain activities and behaviors in children uh, for example um, will stunt their growth you know like weight you shouldn't have kids doing weightlifting for example Uh, women tend to avoid uh, weightlifting for fear of being bulky, but the consequences of that might be also that they're not doing everything they could to maintain their their, their bone health. I mean, perhaps um, we should discuss that. Uh, uh, well, I, I've talked about two different populations there, but for, for kids, firstly, um, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I mean, I think there's some evidence now coming out of uh, Stanford, and, and we've got some LinkedIn evidence to this that suggests that kind of this multi-directional movement in, in children and adolescents is quite protective of, of the bone. It, it helps to maximize that bone accrual in, in, in that period. And this is quite important from a couple of different po- points of view really, because like I said, 20%, sorry, 90% of your bone mass is accrued by the time you're 20 years of age. So if you think about it, that's the, that's the primary time to intervene in terms of osteoporosis which sounds a little bit ridiculous because osteoporosis doesn't normally manifest until older age but certainly if you're thinking about an exercise intervention or a dietary intervention for that matter, um, you know, certainly that period of time is going to be critical because the idea being that if you can increase further that peak bone mass And then hopefully, if you can exercise into middle age and into older age, you would maintain that higher bone mass throughout life. I mean, it's pretty much inevitable that you're going to start to lose bone mass into older age. But if you're losing that from a much higher level, you're still not going to get osteopenic or osteoporotic. So that's quite powerful, really, in that sense. Um, And there is some evidence around that suggests that that exercise in that sort of childhood and adolescent period is actually protective of the bone for a longer period of time than that even if the individual stops exercising. So that is uh, quite powerful. So as far as the bone is concerned, particularly mechanically loading the bone is a powerful stimulus for growth. So I, mean, I think that is, is absolutely um, critical. And also there's some quite nice evidence from the sort of sport performance point of view that's shown that this sort of multi-directional movement in childhood and adolescence is actually quite protective of the bone against future bone-related injury in in athletic populations. And one of the things that this might indicate is um, a need to avoid too much specialization in children too early on. One of the things I think we do too much now is if we see a particularly talented athlete, let's say, you know, a a young athlete who, who shows some propensity for for running, for example, we focus very much on running related training for that individual. We get very specific very early, as opposed to um Allowing them to experience lots of different sports where which might include sort of other multi directional activities like you know, and and like I said, the the data from Stanford is particularly related to basketball, and we've got some data related to to football or soccer related performance. And and allowing you know, this lack of specificity might enable the bone to be more protected even when when we get into more specific training a little bit later on, as, as you know, we, we go through later adolescence and into early adulthood.
0: So one, one thing, uh, and I touched upon this a bit with, um, in Kirsty's uh, podcast, one, one thing that we um, need to be thinking about is, um, as people that are working with active people, will say, so it could be, you know, recreational athletes, uh, professional athletes, elite athletes, athletes. Um, and also this sort of increasing popularity and people striving to achieve um an aesthetic uh look uh, like bikini uh competitors uh, fitness models that sort of thing um, you, you know we we can 't get away from this idea of body composition manipulation, which is a uh, uh, sort of uh, you know, it's a big thing that we do as practitioners, as coaches, um, or people that are into it from a more recreational aesthetic point of view. Um, you know that that process of achieving body composition, which f- for the per- for, f- I'll have to say context first. If we put it into context and say from the perspective of losing body fat um, as the primary, uh, goal here, um, that is achieved through, um, an energy deficit, i.e. cutting calories, eating less. And the problem there though, of course, is in, in, in our approach to, um, eating less. And as a result, that brings about loss of body fat, loss of weight as well. Um, which is another subject. Um, what people aren't necessarily thinking about is the consequences that go with that. Um, you're losing body fat, but what else are you losing? We just don't see that. And and as that relates to bone, Craig, um, what what's what's going to be going on there, and what are the potential consequences?
1: Well, I mean, you know, from a from from a dietary and, and nutritional point of view, there is a few safe things that we can say that influence the bone. And one of the things that we absolutely know the bone doesn't like is chronic reduced energy availability. So that's kind of, you know, what you're talking about there. Mm. And even if you sort of cycle bone, um, sorry, you cycle reduced energy availability, the bone doesn't seem to like that too much either. Probably isn't going to cause too many long-term effects that um, because let's take, there's, there's some data from judo players, for example, who... Have pretty decent bone mineral densities, but they do suffer quite a few stress fracture injuries so so that might be because you know in the long term, this um, cycled reduced energy availability is not necessarily so bad for them, but in the short term, it might be in terms of the bone from a from an injury point of view so getting back to the other sort of um, question around energy availability well. We we know that, that that the bone doesn't like periods of reduced energy availability. I mean that kind of stands to reason, really. That, you know, you're you're taking away energy from the system. Why would you imagine that that would be anything other than somewhat catabolic? I suppose. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things that it does though, as well, is is we might even question, we don't really know the answer to this, but we might really question whether that's reduced energy availability or whether that's reduced nutrient availability. So if you look at the studies that have been done, generally what you do to reduce energy availability is, is you either increase the amount of energy expenditure or you decrease the dietary intake. So, if you decrease the dietary intake, one of the easiest ways is just say you wanted to reduce energy availability by 50%. You you look at the diet and you take, you know, you you cut that in half and you you give half the diet. Part of the problem with that, of course, is that not only are you reducing the energy by 50%, but you're also reducing the carbohydrate intake by 50%, the protein intake by 50%, the fat by 50%, the calcium by 50%, the vitamin D by 50%, etc. So, you're also reducing the nutrient availability so it's it's hard to separate those two things out and we haven't really done that correctly yet
0: yeah I, there's a lot of people who talk about this stuff i I guess who may be um, a little bit more opinionated without actually having the quality evidence to back up what 's being said and you know you hear some rather scary things you know like um, the consequences of eating a really acidic diet or um you know i i mean i and i want to go down those paths in a minute but i you know we we need to clarify what the primary factors are that influence bone health and from my understanding and um i'm cheating really because i sat through one of your lectures on this but (laughs) I, i i know that genetics is is clearly going to be a factor and i would be interested to know what you know, what differences there are in different people with different genetic backgrounds. But primarily, from my understanding, what we're really talking about then is clearly there's a mechanical influence on bone health. There's a nutritional influence on bone health, which I definitely want to get into some more. But you just alluded to, um, in reference to to women uh, and menopause, etc., about the influence of hormones. So perhaps we could um, uh, start this off uh, then um, with what role do hormones have to do with this and, and 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 is that something we can do much about anyway
1: yeah, so I mean maybe if we could just go back a step, I suppose if you 're thinking about some of the risk factors for for bone weakening, then mm. um, like you said, there are a number of non modifiable risk factors, so things like um, you know a family history, age sex um, uh, race ethnicity these are non modifiable risk factors and then there are a set of sort of maybe more modifiable factors that might influence bone weakening so undoubtedly mechanical loading is a massive stimulus um and then there are those other lifestyle factors like you mentioned diet sleep seems to be more and more important sleep and recovery um smoking um is is a big risk factor um, and we, we're coming up with more and more potential risk factors all the time as, as we do more research, obviously. And then, of course, you know there are these um, hormonal profiles. So, so the obvious one, you're quite right, is is oestrogen, and we know that oestrogen in, in is very, very protective over the bone in terms of the female bone. Um, there are a number of other hormonal disturbances that, that could well play. Um, a significant part in bone weakening, and a lot of these are interactive with some of the other influences. So, for example, um, we know that there is a potential influence of things like um, the gut hormones, the incretin and enteric hormones. So, those kind of appetite-related hormones as well. So, things like insulin, leptin, GLP, GLP-2, GLP two, GIP, all of those sorts of things. Um, have been shown at various times to influence um, the control or directly influence um, the the cells related to bone resorption or formation. So I mean there is a big hormonal interplay certainly between um, maybe some of the things that go on when we mechanically load or some of the things that go on when we change our diet and the way in which our bone tissue responds. Um, but but undoubtedly, you know, it would seem that the most obvious and clear-cut one is the role of, of estrogen um, in control of bone.
0: What, what about um, um, people that uh, take supplemental hormones? And that could be... Either the dodgy stuff, um, um, whether it's, you know, things like steroids, testosterone, uh, that sort of thing, or some form of hormonal replacement therapy, um, you you know. And these are things that, that, you know, whether people, you know, want to think about this or not, it is a common thing in one form or another. There's many ways in which people will play around with hormones. Um, Absolutely. You know, um, and I think it would be naive for us not to... To assume that one's client, one's athlete, you know, the person that we're working with may not be in this situation. What what are the what are those likely to be? You think? You
1: yeah, know, well, it's very difficult to pick some of that out because it, I don't think there's there's too much direct evidence looking at the effects of things like um, yeah steroid hormone injections and things like that, particularly in relation. So maybe from a therapeutic point of view, but not particularly in relation to the kind of exercise uh, related sort of uses that, that we would be excuse me we would be talking about here um, in terms of things like uh, hormone replacement therapy and, and stuff well well there's again there's not really very much that compares for example the effects of exercise on bone to the effects of um, drug therapy uh, so there is there is one study from wendy court's lab in Denver that's looked at Um, And basically, they 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 looked at um, whether uh, a drug called raloxifene, which is a specific um, estrogen receptor modulator, or indeed uh, estrogen itself, could protect the bone against exercise-induced weight loss. So they were particularly looking at uh, an exercise trial to to produce weight loss in in females, and. They were then um, seeing whether if they gave raloxifene or traditional hormone therapy, so estrogen-based therapy, would that protect the bone? And one of the things that you can clearly see is that that, that those kind of um, drugs, so so both raloxifene and even more so estrogen, were protective of the bone, even during that exercise-induced weight loss. Interestingly, in that particular study, that the exercise alone seemed to reduce bone mass, um, which is quite quite interesting. But then again, that you know, in that study, the exercise was designed specifically for weight loss, not for um, a positive effect on bone tissue. If that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, I think yeah. the, these kind of interactions are very very interesting, and and from a from an interaction with an exercising individual point of view, we don't really know very much about this whatsoever, if I'm honest. Okay.
0: Um, No, good. Well, I think that's important because otherwise people spend too much time on, you know, I did a podcast. My last podcast was with Dr. Marco Cardinale, and, you know, we got into this idea of marginal gains, you know, and over stuff. And I think the fact is we don't really know. So, so maybe what we, you know, what we, what we need to be thinking about is what we do know and what we, you know, what are the things that have the biggest impact then, which I guess is the mechanical and nutritional sides of this. Um, So is any kind of mechanical stress, you know, just any, just, just any kind of exercise a factor or do we need to be more specific?
1: We definitely need to be more specific. I mean, I think, and again, it's difficult to petition some of this out. So undoubtedly, you know, the, the, if, you, if you're thinking about a positive influence on bone, because it can go either way, of course. So, so exercise can have a negative effect on bone as well as a positive effect. But if we think of it in terms of a positive effect on the bone, then, then certainly those kinds of exercises that are high impact, um, and are multidirectional are certainly the most um, beneficial for bone. And we can see that quite clearly. You can get quite rapid. We've got a couple of papers due to come out, actually, um, one of which is just on the, the screen next to me that I'm just finishing off. But um, we've got a couple of papers coming out soon that show um, that, that training high-impact and multi-directional movement, so in one case this is military basic training, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with from your past, Laurent, and uh, the other one um, is, is football-specific training in, in young individuals. can change the, the bone geometry and bone mineral density in probably somewhere between 10 and 12 weeks, and that happens in the case of the... Um, Military recruits in in unaccustomed exercise, which is another big stimulator. So if if the exercise is unaccustomed, it tends to promote more positive influences on the bone. Um, But it also, in in the case of the the adolescent soccer players that we looked at, it produces a change in the bone in in only 12 weeks in individuals who are already adapted to that type of exercise. So that kind of high-impact multi-directional movement is definitely important. If we think of it from potentially the negative point of view, then unloaded exercise or exercise that's um, prolonged and strenuous can cause at least short-term negative influences on the bone. In the long term, it's hard to separate out that from things like you know, chronic reduced energy availability and, and things like this. So whether that's a direct exercise effect or whether that's a linked exercise effect with other things, it's, it's difficult to really um, pull out but um, from, from John Scott's PhD a few years ago we, we showed that the really strenuous bout of exercise can significantly increase the bone resorption response and that stays elevated for about four days post exercise actually without um, stimulating any change in the, in the bone formation response and of course you know, if you take an athlete which athlete doesn't train again within that f- four day period I mean that's, you know, that's never going to happen And the other flip side of that is, well, you know, we only followed it for four days. If we followed it for another four days, you might have seen bone resorption start to decrease and bone formation start to increase. So, again, it's very difficult to pick some of these things out. Um, But certainly, I think we know that, you know, if I'm going to summarize what I just said, that exercise can be positive and negative for the bone. Exercise is positive generally when it's unaccustomed, when it's multi-directional, when it's high impact. But of course that comes with a potential risk of of injury also. Um, And I I guess this is one of the things you've got to get into if you're going to start to prescribe exercise interventions in the older individual to try and recover some bone. It gets pretty close to to the fracture index, or you have to get pretty close to the fracture index if you want to induce an osteogenic response. Whereas negative influences on the bone can also uh, be seen, but this is usually seen where you've got non-loaded exercise, which has still got quite a high metabolic uh, load.
0: Right. So a lot of this, I mean, obviously... Sorry, complicated. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, well, no, it isn't. Uh, uh, Sorry, it is, but it's not difficult to think that, you know, this stuff is pretty complex, and, of course, it, it does become, again, a sort of a context sort of it depends scenario because like you're saying you know uh, we need multi-directional mechanical stress uh, but too much of it ends up being a problem particularly if you're not eating the right foods or enough of the right foods and that combination of factors is something that is a reality um, that I find in in my practice with athletes is the the they they've got too much repetition of the same stuff, um, exercise-wise. They're doing you know too much of the same thing, um, which may not be the right thing for for bone health. But also they tend to eat in a very restricted um, energy availability situation, which is obviously where I come in. I try and solve all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I guess as we as we just to end that bit on mechanical stress, then you, you know you hear people um in the you know sort of in in the in the more uh, peer-reviewed uh, literature like on twitter <laughs> uh you, you know people will talk about well all you've got to do is lift heavy that's the most important thing but i guess what you're saying is it's it, it's not just a case of lifting heavy you know there are more than there's more than one way to mechanically uh, influence positively bone
1: I oh, know absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, you, you've got those kind of high impact exercises, which generate kind of, if you, I suppose, you know, these these um, compressive, and tensile forces on the bone. As the bone is is forced to bend, it then will respond in terms of um, generating strength in the area where it it feels it needs that strength.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, of course, you've also got torsional effects, which may come from from muscle actions on on the bone. So. You know, certainly, um, things like resistance exercise can still produce positive influences on the bone by view by view of muscle action. It doesn't have to necessarily be, um, you know, uh, sort of ground impact related force. Um, you can you can generate a, an effect on the bone from from the effect of the muscle. Um, but I mean, I think you know. We do need some sort of combination of those things, I think, in general to be beneficial for the bone. Um, and like I said, that's where maybe this multi directional movement comes in somewhat, is because then you start to influence equally the geometry of, of the bone around the bone itself, if that makes sense, rather yeah. than that, you know, in, 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 in specific directions or dimensions.
0: Yeah, so I, I guess as we appropriately periodize our training um one of the factors if we're thinking about bone health is this issue that that we don't just want to load the bone we need to sort of bend it and twist it a bit as well yeah um you know which is important because I, i like i said you know i've heard often that people will say you only need to do weight bearing exercises um and that clearly isn't just the case No,
1: no, I think one of the things that's really, really important there is that, and and we tend to do this, don't we? Um, One of the things that's really important there is that bone is just one tissue. Mm. So if you sort of say, right, okay, well, all I want to do is I'm going to design an exercise training regimen that's going to influence bone, that's great, you're going to have good bones, but what about your muscles, what about other things? Whereas, you know, we might need to design more holistic type training programmes that kind of influence multiple tissues, you know, cardiovascular system, muscular system, skeletal system, respiratory system, you know, whatever it may be, you know, might influence our balance to reduce falls in old people. What you know, there are multiple different reasons why we might look towards an exercise intervention. And I think to just go down one path for one to target one particular tissue only is is a false positive.
0: Yeah. So, okay, so that, that leads me on to um, nutrition, and, you know, we've, or we've, well, you've made it quite clear that uh, the bones don't particularly enjoy um, reduced energy availability, particularly energy deficits. Um, of course, that's probably not an issue in the short term, but again, that's a contextual issue, like how short do we mean? Do we mean... Is a month short? <laughs> uh, is a year short? Like how you know how short is short? So you know it's the usual issue. No one defines what they mean when they throw out these statements. But nutrition, over and above the basic sort of energy availability issue, what what are what are going to be the key factors within nutrition for this?
1: I think there's four four main things. I think we we know absolutely. Well, I'd be confident I'd say, no, absolutely. We never know absolutely, but but we, I'd be confident in talking about. And then there's some others where there's some, some reasonably strong evidence. So energy, reduced energy availability is one. So we've already sort of touched on that. The second one would be macronutrient composition. And we know that each of the macronutrients individually influences the bones, of so carbohydrate, fat, and protein. And protein is quite an interesting one, which we might get onto again in a minute because there's a potential pro and a con with protein that a lot of people talk about. And then the other one is calcium homeostasis. So in particular, the amount of calcium and the amount of vitamin D. Um, And they're reasonable no-brainers. I mean, you you certainly need an adequate intake of calcium, which needs to probably be higher during periods of um, childhood and adolescent bone growth. Um, And you also need uh, sufficient vitamin D. So that's a very, very simple one for me, vitamin D, as far as the bone tissue is concerned. If you've If you're you're insufficient or deficient, get sufficient. It's pretty much as simple as that. So if you look at your circulating vitamin D concentrations, your 25 OHD concentrations, and they're at the the insufficient or deficient level, then you, you need to get sufficient. That's quite a straightforward one. Um, So they're the sort of four main things that I would say, okay, we're pretty confident these are going to exert some influence. And then there are a number of other things um, sort of uh, in terms of micronutrient composition. So we know magnesium is likely to play a role, vitamin K2, vitamin C. Um, There is some emerging in vitro evidence to suggest that things like boron and silicon intake might well also influence um, bone. And then you come out to other things, so, so there's also some recent evidence um, that that points towards the potential for creatine supplementation to enhance uh, bone mineral density in postmenopausal women who are also undergoing resistance exercise training. Equally there's some, some contradictory evidence to that from Bruno Guilano's group at University of Sao Paulo, um, which doesn't seem to show any beneficial effect of, of creatine supplementation in the same population either with or without exercise so i mean there's you know there's kind of stuff that exists at at that level where i think the evidence is either contradictory some somewhat equivocal or there just isn't enough of it but i mean certainly certainly matching recommended daily intakes of of the 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 micronutrients would seem sensible on, on many levels you know it's not not rocket science from that
0: point of view I was just thinking, actually, uh, in those sort of differences in studies, and we've talked about that with all sorts of people that have been on this podcast, you know, there's a lot of issues with how we read and interpret studies. Um, But of course, uh, like your Brazilian participants might eat a lot more red meat, of course, who uh, may, <laughs> yeah exactly who uh who may uh be getting a lot more creatine from their diet uh, as opposed to participants in the other study who might not have done i don't know anyway that's another subject <laughs> um, so, um but so yeah let's explore this nutrition a bit more then um because i know again in the same way that you hear people go on about ah oh, well um you know you just do weight-bearing exercises that's all you've got to do also People say, oh, well, you just need to take a supplement with some, uh, some calcium in it, you know, and, and uh, that'll, that'll almost miraculously reverse your osteoporosis. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the role of supplementation, um, you know, how significant is that likely to be if we, if we do put that in context?
1: Again, coming back to context, it depends on, you know, I think who you're really talking about. So if we're talking about the elite athlete for a moment, there's a couple of different issues there. So for example, let's take the elite endurance athlete. Now, the elite endurance athlete might have um, an increased dermal calcium loss. So, you know, you can lose calcium through the sweat. So if you get this increased dermal calcium loss, Then potentially there is a role for supplementation before or during exercise to to offset that loss. There is some evidence from from Wendy Court's group again and and, some studies between sort of Wendy Court and Dan Barry, and also some study or a recent study that's just come out with um, Louise Burke as one of the authors that suggests that feeding calcium either before or during the activity or even in in the case of uh, Louise's study, a a high calcium-containing meal pre-exercise does offset this potential calcium loss. And so you have an an effect on the, the circulating calcium concentrations, which means that you don't then get such an elevation in the parathyroid hormone concentration, which means that then subsequently you don't get such an elevation in the bone resorption response. But that's obviously quite specific to individuals where you know they may be losing uh, calcium as part of the exercise and where that might be sufficient I still don't think we understand enough about that I'm not I'm not 100% convinced that that is still the key uh, regulatory mechanism and in fact I know Wendy Court's got some data that suggests that maybe we're losing calcium from the circulation in an, in a in another as yet unknown way um and, and so I think some of that data that she presented at ACSM is going to be fascinating over the next few years. So that's one way, for example. Um, so then there are other things. You know, so we know we, we've just um, we've completed a trial a little while ago. We've just sent second uh, comments back to Journal of Applied Physiology on where we've given carbohydrate supplementation during exercise, and we've shown a slight suppression of bone turnover. So basically that seems to suppress both the activity of the bone resorption markers but funnily enough also the bone formation markers. So I mean I think you know depending on what type of exercise you're looking at, um, what your population is then certainly there there may well be a role for supplementation and more generically of course you know then there is a role for vitamin D supplementation if you've got a deficient or an insufficient athlete. uh, you know, we know from general dietary means it's very, very hard to elevate vitamin D uh, circulating vitamin D levels uh, in those individuals. So, I mean, supplementation may play a role, but again, as as you, as you always say, it's extremely context specific. Um, I think you know we come back to the creatine issue as well. There's another potential role there, but I mean, you know, there's so many different uh, potential roles, but it will depend upon. Um, Whether you're talking about a a sprint athlete, whether you're talking about an endurance athlete. One of the interesting ones that that no one's really looked at is that sprint athlete because they still stress fracture quite a lot. Mm. And that might just simply be because of the very, very high mechanical loads that they're undergoing. But um, I think we haven't really necessarily looked at whether metabolic acidosis might play a role, for example. And if metabolic acidosis plays a role, well, might. And buffering agents then play a role in, in protecting the bone in that individual. So these are all sort of things that, you know, we haven't really explored yet at all.
0: Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, I, the whole acidosis thing, I, I want to touch upon that in a second. Uh, and I'm aware that we could run out of time here. But let let's just quickly talk about protein, because that's the one that surprised me the most, actually, was the positive and negative influences that protein can have. And... I think, you know, it, uh, that's the thing now that a lot of people are now talking about um, consuming lots of protein for lots of reasons. You know, it, it, it's, it's not just about building muscle. Um, it might also be a, a useful macro, macronutrient that you could potentially increase. Um, for its benefits to satiety, Um, you know, if you want to be able to lower other macronutrients like carbohydrates and or fat calories, upping protein seems to be a a useful uh, strategy uh, when we're looking at uh, nutrition uh, programs for people. Um, But specifically how this relates to bone, I mean, what are the things that we should be aware of with regards to uh, protein and bone?
1: Uh, I think there's two main issues with this. So there is a potential hypothesis, and it's called the acid-to-ash hypothesis, which suggests that uh, the uh, dietary intake, which is high in animal protein, is negative for the bone. So we know, you know, as you rightly said, there are a number of circumstances where um, athletes or athletic individuals take in a higher protein um, or high amount of protein in their diet than than would normally be anticipated. And where this might be animal protein based, there is this hypothesis that that increases the acid load on the body. And one of the ways in which that acid load then gets buffered is by releasing calcium from the bone um, into the circulation. So you then buffer that acid load that's been produced by the high animal protein diet Of course, the downside to that is that any of that excess calcium that's then released is then lost down the toilet in the urine. And, of course, in order to release that calcium from the bone, you've got to break down the bone tissue. So what that basically results in is a net loss of bone tissue. And that is a perfectly plausible hypothesis. But one of the things that seems to mediate that um, hypothesis is the dietary intake of of calcium. So certainly there does seem to be a negative or or more negative influence of protein on the bone, a high animal protein intake on the bone, when individuals are taking in only a small amount of dietary calcium. In individuals that are taking a, a larger amount of dietary calcium, you don't seem to see these negative influences of the bone. So of course, one other thing there is that one of the things you might need to think about, particularly in the endurance training individuals, if you are getting a high dermal calcium loss, then, um, of course, you might need to put even more calcium in to make sure that you've got adequate calcium levels. So the flip side of that hypothesis is that there is some in vitro evidence that amino acids alone can positively act upon the osteoblast, which is one of these really bone-forming cells, to, to promote bone formation. Added to that, there is also this potential that protein can elevate IGF-1 concentrations. And we know again from in vitro evidence that IGF-1 can positively influence osteoblastic bone formation. So proteins is a really interesting one. You've got kind of this potential negative influence and you've got this potentially um, positive influence. I personally, at this stage, from what I know, would say suggests that there isn't really any problem with consuming the kind of of elevated protein diets that have been hypothesized for athletic performance. I'm not talking about crazy stuff, but those kind of levels that are proposed by the likes of, you know, Kev Tipton and and Stu Phillips and the like, and, and Luke Van Loon, will all be fine as far as the bone is concerned, especially when calcium intake is adequate. And I think as long as you've got you know you're working within those parameters calcium intake is is adequate then i don't think there would be any negative implications for a higher protein intake on the bone
0: yeah i again if if i'm if i'm to be pragmatic about that thing uh, you know of course people will talk about this and i know that some people go oh you know that's a reason to not eat loads of protein but of course if you look That's because we're looking specifically at protein and maybe protein associated for building muscle mass and all that sort of thing. And of course, there are various people that would actually recommend that we consume even higher levels of protein and they'll throw plenty of arguments as to why that might be beneficial. And I guess we just need to bear in mind that there are pros and cons to all these things. You need to look at the balance of all that and the outcomes that you're trying to achieve. But one obvious thing there, of course, is... You know, if you're eating a high protein diet that's lacking in um, vegetables, particularly green leafy vegetables that are a a sound source of things like calcium um, and other um, buffering agents, um, then obviously Hmm. that's going to be a a factor there. So um, I know I did some mathematics myself once when I looked at potential renal acid load um, of various types of, of diets and, um, even people with very high protein diets and by very high, I mean, you know, more than two grams per pound of body weight of, of um, animal protein. Um, e- e- you know, simply eating plenty of vegetables with every feeding, um, um, you know, does tend to balance the whole thing out of course. Um, so, Absolutely. you know, and, uh, and that's just a you know, we, we need vegetables for lots of reasons, not just, us for that but it's important we discuss that because of course when scientists publish papers or we have these very specific conversations we you know we're we're talking about very um we're having a very focused conversation or a very focused look at these things Um, but in the real world um i think it's it's definitely a, a concern with athletes they don't eat enough vegetables um, that could be another subject, but it doesn't mean that, uh, we should be worrying about it. Um, um, so, um, um, let's, let's, let's talk about something else that I, I think we should think about is we're talking about bone health here, but how do we even know what health our bones are in? I mean, how do we, you know, how do we assess the status of our, of our bones? Um, and, uh, is that something that, that, that regular people are even in, in a position to do?
1: Okay, so there's a, a few different ways, and now we're going to get really into some, some muddy waters. So, I mean, you, you've got a number of different ways of looking at the bone, depending on what it is that you want to know. So if you want to look at sort of short-term acute influences on the bone, so let's say you wanted to look at, you know, what a what effect a single exercise bout had or what effect a single um, uh, meal had, you haven't really got much choice but to look at Um, biochemical markers of of bone turnover in the blood. There are a number of things in the blood that you can look at that are are representative of the activity of either the bone resorption process or the bone formation process. But this is quite tricky as well because there are a number of things that influence the interpretation of those markers. So things like, for example, they have a strong circadian rhythm, so the time of day at which you take these markers might influence the result you get. Um, feeding influences them so you've got to be careful around feeding Um, not all of the markers that we use are bones are bone specific which complicates things particularly around exercise because if these things are also released from the tendon or from the muscle then obviously that complicates our interpretation so that's a bit of a minefield in itself but we really don't have much choice if you want to look very acutely at what the bone might be doing And then there are a number of ways looking at different sort of elements of the bone um, more long term. So one of the most sort of common, which probably most people would know, is to look at aerial bone mineral density by using a DEXA. So obviously the DEXA takes a two dimensional image, and from that two dimensional image it calculates the the area and it can look at you know the bone mineral density, uh, sorry, the bone mineral content relative to that area. So that's one way, but, but aerial bone mineral density we know only accounts for something like 60, 65, 70% of, of bone strength. And so the remainder of the bone strength is made up of um, things that relate to bone geometry. So if you want to look at bone geometry, you need to then have a three-dimensional image of um, the bone, obviously, because otherwise you can't look at the shape of the bone without this three-dimensional image. So then we can use techniques like um, peripheral quantitative computed tomography. So this is a technique which, I, which I said, is, gives you this three dimensional image of the bone. Downside of that is you, you know, you're you're limited to um, the sites that you can look at. So you can conduct a DEXA scan on a whole body, for example, whereas the PQCT you're only really looking at the, the tibia or or bones in the forearm. And then there's one other area which we can delve into slightly more detail and that is to look at the micro-architectural makeup of the bone. So that is looking at the separation between that kind of um, you know, trabecular bone, that spongy bone as most people would know it as, or that hard compact bone, the cortical bone. So that can separate out you know, a little bit more because of the nature of the image that you get, those kind of bone compartments. So. Again, it's 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 complicated, but it kind of depends on what it is you want to know. If you want to know these sort of short-term influences, you've got no choice but to look at biochemical turnover markers. And if you're talking about access for the average individual, then only if they've got deep pockets um, because they're <laughs> expensive, um, and they, you know they, they don't tend to tell you an awful lot. Whereas you know, if you want to really look at sort of long-term sort of bone health, you're really talking about, you know, DEXA scan primarily, and then we can look at more specific indicators of bone strength if we need to using, you know, PQCT or high-resolution PQCT or micro-CT to try and get um, more detailed influences.
0: Yeah, I, I think... Since I've looked at this in various different ways as a practitioner, but also for myself personally or members of my family, you know, what, what is the value of this information? And of course, you realize that as a society, we, 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 you know, we put a lot of faith in certain methods of diagnostics. uh, And uh, we we just take it for granted that, you know, uh, a few years back, I guess it was, it was sticking your foot in that ultrasound thing. And, and, um, you know, m- m- making some assumptions from that, or of course now dexas are becoming more available, um, and we assume that that is an exact representation. Uh, or, in um, uh, I-, I know that in the more medical circles, or in uh, the more alternative medicine circles as well, there are like urinary NTX tests that look for those uh, byproducts of bone resorption. Um, mm-hmm. But of course. You know, like you said, it depends on the interpretation and this is where the issues come into play because it's a bit like us doing metabolic testing to assess uh, rates of fat oxidation, but if at the same time you're not thinking about... um, how much fat you're consuming in your diet or, you know, uh, uh, energy partitioning, you know, from the diet and converting, say, carbohydrate calories back into fat, that sort of becomes a a rather silly conversation. Um, And I guess the same thing goes for bone. You know, this one thing shows blah, blah, blah results in increased bone loss. But on the other hand, you know, your body may just be putting it back at the end of the day. Um, We just don't know yet, do we? And and, um, I, I guess... I think we should have respect for the fact that we are only just scratching the surface on this stuff and it's a bit soon. So, so the reason why I'm, I'm mentioning this is, um, Mm -hmm. because we're at the end of this podcast now is, is really, I I guess we need to bear in mind that the things that we can be absolutely sure of, um, is that our day-to-day habits and behaviors that will have a positive or negative impact on, on the diet are largely the things that we've discussed, you know, this business of, well, we need mechanical stress, and we've made it quite clear that it's not just about you know, weight-bearing exercise. It's multi-directional stuff. Um, we know that um, diet has Im- important factors, as does things that are either diet and or lifestyle-related, such as exposure to sunshine for vitamin D. All these things have a factor, so there's obviously a number of things. But there's also a lot of things that have very marginal impacts and those are the things that people spend too much time on i think you know they spend all their time yeah. going out of their way to have their supplements or potentially oh i'm not going to eat enough protein because it might you know have a negative consequence uh on um uh, on this situation whereas actually the bigger picture is uh, do some exercise eat a balanced diet um and that's probably going to have the biggest impact
1: yeah I would agree. I mean, I think, I think undoubtedly of those factors that you can influence, mechanical loading is going to be the biggest. So, I mean, you know, you know, we probably don't need to tell most of the people who are listening to this podcast that lifelong exercise is going to be a good thing. Um, but also I think, you know, there are those other things, you know, not smoking, uh, making sure you get adequate rest and sleep. And making sure you've got a diet that's adequate in in uh, macro and micronutrient composition is is and then trying to avoid prolonged periods of reduced energy availability is probably, for most people, going to be a pretty reasonable way to to protect the bone.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. So listen, look, thank you, Craig. Um, there's lots of stuff we could have gone into, and I'm sure we'll come up with another. Another podcast very soon, uh, but I do appreciate your time. I know that you're super busy, and it's uh, it's great for, for myself, of course, but for all the listeners to to share in your um, specialized knowledge in this stuff. And I know that this is a very fluid area of science, and it, and it continues to grow and develop. Uh, largely, of course, because you're doing all the research here. Well, not all of it, but you're doing a lot of it. Um, And uh, for folks that want to know a bit more about you and uh, your research, uh, could you just remind us of your Twitter and um, your uh, website, please? Uh,
1: Website, I can never remember that one, but if people just go on to uh, Google and type my name in it, I think it comes up pretty much up there in my NTU staff profile. Um, My Twitter is at sale underscore xnut, E-X-N-U-T.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very much a nut, Craig. Yeah, exactly. You're not the first person who said that. (laughs) Uh, So um, that brings us to the end of uh, this episode 60 of the uh, Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. I'd like to um, say a special thank you to Healthspan Elite, who, of course, are sponsoring this podcast now. Um, And you can learn more about um, their range of informed sport accredited Vitamins and supplements, they're all evidence-based. And you can visit their website at healthspanelite.co.uk. You can, of course, learn more about this podcast um, and all the things that we get up to at uh, Guru Performance at guruperformance.com. In particular, if you want to learn more um, about these sorts of things uh, in a professional capacity, you can actually um, see uh, lectures from uh, Craig um, on various topics, including this one on the ISSN Diploma. Um, You can learn more about the ISSN uh, Diploma International Postgraduate Program at ISSNdiploma.com. And I am, of course, Laurel Bannock, and I look forward to bringing another podcast back to you all very soon.